Welcome back to The Film Experience. You're listening to another edition of the Supporting Actress Smackdown. We've been doing tons of them this summer. In fact, it's all we've been doing, and we hope you're enjoying as much as we are. I'm your host, Nathaniel, and uh, this topic today is 1991, which is a year that's very close to our hearts. Uh, Lots of great movies, including a couple of the ones we watch. Um, The nominees were Diane Ladd in Rambling Rose, Juliette Lewis in Cape Fear, Kate Nelligan in The Prince of Tides, Mercedes Rule in The Fisher King, who won the Oscar, and Jessica Tandy in Fried Green Tomatoes. Um, now, all of those movies had other nominations, at least one other nomination, particularly The Prince of Tides, which was inexplicably a big hit and a major Oscar player, but we'll get to that in a minute, and uh, The Fisher King, which had a lot of nominations but did not make the best picture list. I mean, here to discuss these movies and the actresses, are a very exciting panel. Um, This was not intentional, but we ended up with a very New York theater crowd. I'm so excited to introduce the panel to you today. Uh, First of all, we have a returning guest, Mark Harris. Oh, hi. (laughs) Um, Yes, I am uh, currently a features writer for New York Magazine and Vulture, and um, I've written a couple of books on film history uh, Pictures of a Revolution and Five Came Back, and my next book, which is a biography of Mike Nichols, is coming out early next year. Very exciting. So I guess there's no post-production shutdown for books. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Well, you've done several Smackdowns, so you're an old old pro that's happy to have you back. And then I'm very excited to welcome Tony winner Nikki M. James. Oh, that's you. Well, you said the only thing, the thing that's most important about me. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a New York-based, <laughs> I'm a New York-based actress. Um, my heart is in musical theater. I won the Tony Award for the Book of Mormon in 2011. Um, but recently I've been doing some television and film and sort of spreading my wings in both contemporary and classical plays. Um, and uh, that's me. Great. Very excited you're here. And uh, Rory O'Malley, Tony-nominated Rory O'Malley. Hi, guys. I am so excited to be here, mostly because my husband, Gerald Schroeder, is such a huge fan of the film experience. And when this opportunity came, he was like, you have to do it. You're lucky you get to be a part of the SmackDown. And I agree. I um, have had a lot of fun watching these movies with him. I am from uh, the stage as well. I was in the Book of Mormon with Nikki James and uh, in Hamilton as King George for a time. And I'm currently in the company of Hamilton, Los Angeles, if that can be a thing. <laughs> we talk on Zoom a lot. Um, and uh, also in Central Park on Apple TV. Great. I'm so happy we finally did this because we've been talking about it for a while. Yes. And uh, welcome back, Katie Rich, who's been on the podcast many times. Yeah, yeah. I, I've never been on a SmackDown before. So being on a Film Experience podcast again is a wonderful uh, return to a period of my life I love so much. Um, I am the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, where I got to edit Mark Harris briefly. Mark, we don't have you anymore, so you didn't have to list. I'm not offended that you didn't list us among your outlets, but uh, <laughs> that was that was delightful for me, too. Um, and I'm on two podcasts as well, Little Gold Men at um, Vanity Fair, where we are obsessed over Oscar season and also uh, Fighting in the War Room. And, um, yeah, I it's been a long time since I've been on a Film Experience podcast, so this is a delight. And finally, we have Nick Westrate, actor and podcaster. Yeah. Hi, I'm Nick. Uh, I'm a theater actor based in New York City. Um, 
uh, and also uh, who for a while was on a show on AMC called Turn Washington Spies, which you can watch on Netflix right now if you need bingeable things so that I can get some residuals. And um, I'm also the host of For the Girls podcast. We are the sole only international gay diva podcast where queer men and women come on to worship their different divas every week. And you, your, your new episode is when we're recording this, at least, is Bette Midler. Yes, it's like our fourth or fifth Bette Midler episode, because Bette Midler is my diva. So this one focuses on her 1980 filmed concert, Divine Madness. Great. Well, we have a lot of divas to discuss today. We do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is a good intro into these movies. But um, I was trying to think of how to even get start. And can we talk about the framing devices for a second? So many of these movies are like, let me tell you a story. (laughs) Was that like a thing in the 90s? Everybody had to do that. I don't know. I forgot that they were all like that. and Four of them are set in the South. I I didn't somehow, that didn't register um, when um, I was looking at the list of nominees. But after seeing all five movies, that's a lot of golden light, you know, (laughs) a lot of sort of nostalgia filtering. Yeah, I don't know if there are any other Southerners here, but uh, as a Southerner, I was really, uh, I, had, I had a lot of moments watching some of these. And, you know, you get Diane Ladd, who comes by your Southern accent, honestly, and then you get Robert De Niro. There's a wide range of Southern accents on display here. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Robert De Niro was going for naturalism exactly in Cape Fear. <laughs> <Rivera. laughs> my first encounter with that accent, I was like, oh, I see. Like, this is like the character that Katie is playing. And I was like, oh, no, it's just a really horrific Southern accent. I wish I could get away with that. It's so terrible. You can get away with a lot if you're Robert. <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah. Or, or Jessica Tandy, actually. Um, as long as you, you, you're a legend already, people let you nominate you for anything. I mean, that was one of the biggest <laughs> that was one of the biggest gags of this whole lineup of films was watching Iggy Threadgood, the original stunt queen, like fucking lead Kathy Bates on that whole movie. And like Kathy Bates and like Tawanda never for once asked, like, how did you know these people? Yeah. What's your connection with this tale? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and at the end, she's like that. She's just seeing the honey at the grave and it's like, it's you? Like, and- come on. Except it's not. It's not her. Who That's is it? The- it, the movie is really bad at making it clear that Minnie and Iggy are not the same person. They're and not? I don't know if they... No. Did you read the when book? You, yes. Oh, okay. Oh, well, there you go. Not for this, but, like, just because yeah. I happen to be obsessed with that film. Um, you know, but, like, yeah, they're not the same. Like, apparently Minnie married, like, Iggy's brother or something like that. They're not supposed to be the same person. I'm not sure if the film was trying to if they were just like bad at making that clear or if they were trying to keep it sort of open-ended, but they're not. That makes a little more sense to me because I was like, did Jessica Tandy and Mary Stuart Masterson ever have a conversation about who they are? <laughs> Like, I, I mean, I love Jessica Tandy's performance in it because I remember it so well as a kid and I love that movie so much. As a, like I was 10 years old and loved a movie about menopause and a <laughs> lesbian relationship. But I just, I, I feel like they never really talked before they filmed. And so that makes a lot more sense if they're not. But it, believe me, I've always thought they were the same 
person well, actually said that. There's a few other moments that make it really clear, which is when Minnie talks about her husband and then her son. Remember, she like talks about yeah. the child she had. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very, um, yeah, that's, yeah. See, I thought it was I thought it was just another way that the movie was being really timid about sexuality to make sure it was clear that maybe they weren't lesbians, you know. I was reading up on this movie because it completely baffled me. I have to admit, like I I was baffled at the moment Kathy Bates's wig appeared and I never stopped being baffled for the. (laughs) (laughs) And I saw this thing that the director apparently said that the food fight that um, Mary Louise Parker and Mary Stuart Masterson have with each other is supposed to be a metaphor for lesbian sex. Like the, what? the food fight is supposed <laughs> to be the thing that tells you that yes, they're actually lovers. So I don't think that's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad it feels like, because Fanny Flagg was a co-writer on the screenplay, right? So it feels yeah. like they were not listening to lesbian icon Fanny Flagg when they were making this film. Funny too. I mean, I don't remember what year this movie came out, but it's like a similar issue with um, the color purple, right? Where they, mm-hmm. where they sort of they hint at it, they sort of make an allusion to it, but they're 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 never wanting to make it very clear. And like some part of it, I understand, which is like ultimately, like the movie is about a lesbian relationship, but it is also about just like female friendship, like mm-hmm. bigger than that, and about how um, women have to bond together and take care of each other and they do that with the sissy uh Cicely Tyson character as well you know sort of like that that whole dynamic too with the older magical black person but mm-hmm. um but yeah so it's weird that that's like a thing that they sort of shy away from and in all, some of the other films like pedophilia is something that we're like totally okay with so I'm like I don't know <laughs> like, can I just say I have to say I I watched all these movies on my own, except for with my husband, but uh, my mom is quarantined with us. And I was like, let's watch this Rambling Rose. It's the only one I haven't seen before. I'm sure it's just a lovely romantic comedy with Laura Dern. I love her. I was mother and daughter relationship. My mom bailed. She was like, well, I just don't think that's appropriate. (laughs) I'm mom. Were, I'm with your mom. I also don't think it's appropriate. No. <laughs> they were terrified of nymphomania in the early 90s. It was like a huge fear. <laughs> and but totally fine with 13-year-old boys just being like, yeah, I'm ready. Just like bring like, have my sexual awakening with an actual adult woman. Yeah, it was it was uncomfortable. Like and it was it really was like you're watching something from 1991 and how that scene would not be done or at least would be dealt with by the end of the movie <laughs> like it wasn't even discussed again it, it it drove my husband from the room he was sort of half paying attention and suddenly he looked up and was like what is happening here yeah <laughs> wow yeah one thing that really surprised me about this movie is that since it's a female director martha coolidge and and yet it still uses the trope that we get in every movie where it's like a man's reminiscence like it's like a a coming of age through right. through a young boy's turned older. Like I, you didn't need that John Hurd character or anything in that movie. Could and then the mom good. is is gone in the end, and it's the dad who's like, "Oh, she lives on." Like, fuck you, you should die. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Where's mom? Like, let her have the. It, oh, it was sorry. sort of interesting that that um for all its 
weirdness, um, Cape Fear starts with a woman's voice. Um, yeah. Juliet Lewis literally says my reminiscence at the very beginning of the movie. And mm. like, I didn't remember that at all, that it's, it's very lightly framed as her recollection of these mm. events. Yeah. And I it love... ends on her eyes. Yes. Right. And, uh, I love about, about that specific thing, um, that even the way I, everybody from, from the blurbs, everybody loved Juliet Lewis, which I was very glad about. And, um, even the way she pronounces certain words, it feels like someone who's just learned the word. Like she's like a very precocious, like teenager. And so like, even the way she says reminiscence and other words within the movie feels like she just learned them and she knows she's, she's very intelligent. She's showing you. Right. I don't know. I just love the performance. It's like uh, SAT prep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mark, you said that you said that she was trying to think, through things in real time, which is like how spontaneous. That's what it felt like to me. Like of all five movies, um, that big centerpiece scene in, in Cape Fear, uh, you know, her and Robert De Niro in the, in the high school drama auditorium was the only one I went back and watched a second time. Cause I was just mesmerized by, it. I mean, he's great and he's a good scene partner. I mean, he's very generous in, in that way, but she's, I thought she was amazing in that. Um, Brilliant. Kind of slows the whole rhythm of the movie down so that you can feel her thinking. For me, it was the scariest thing in the movie. She's as scary to me in that movie as De Niro is. Like her Mm. unpredictability and what uh, the kind of risk that she proposes to that family Mm -hmm. is she's like the open window in the house for the whole movie. She's constantly dangling over a cliff. Like, yep. she's going to jump because nobody's telling her what the world is and coddling her. And it's... it's yeah, Well, because her parents are so deeply self-involved. Yeah. Like, she's, she's like, a clearly this, like... I mean, the volatility, I think is what I wrote in my blurb, like, the volatility of puberty, where, like, you don't actually know if you should be terrified or turned on. Like, you, mm-hmm. you don't, you actually don't know the difference between these two sensations, because it's, like, probably the first time in your life you have, like, actual autonomy. And so, like, the adrenaline that's running through her body in that scene with him, where she, like, registers that she should walk away but she doesn't like, I remember thinking like, I can't even believe this scene goes on as long as it does, yeah. you know, cause you're like, who would stay? But of course she does because like, she's experiencing like this, you know, like it's like BDSM or something. Like she's experiencing like this hmm. fetishizing of her sexuality. And then, and then, and then her parents lie to her so much. It's so brilliant. And, and, and Mark, look what you said about that scene. But for me, it's also that scene at the end where her eyes and her mouth are doing totally different things. Yeah, I love that in your blurb, Nikki. I couldn't even imagine, yeah. like, as an actor, I was like, that is the ultimate thing. You know, yeah. not indicating your, like, telling the audience and the your scene partner two different sets of information. It was just, I was blown away by it. I think the yeah. other scene that I think she's just so brilliant in is the scene where um, Nick Nolte confronts her, her playing her father. Um, and she's playing it almost like, like she's almost like proud of her, of living on the edge, you know, until he gets really angry and like puts his hand on her mouth and like the fear and revulsion she feels there. I just, I don't know how Scorsese got that performance or how Juliet gave it, but it's, it's something. 
it was that thing that's so true about teenagers that you get angry to cover your feeling of humiliation that mm-hmm. that it, it, when he claps his hand over her mouth he's really shaming her and she's she's already we know a little bit mortified at what she did in the you know uh the auditorium because she we've just seen her run out she she kind of shocked herself and then her 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 father shaming her like that allows her to like cover her embarrassment with anger which just felt like the most honest reading of like how that 16 year old girl would have reacted yeah and she's just being treated like a child when she desperately wants to be treated like a woman and the psychopath treats her like a woman and then her dad still in that moment grabs her and shakes her and grabs her and doesn't say he's a rapist this is what rape is this is like like he doesn't give her the facts because he's it's just crazy let's not forget that she's in her underwear in that scene right it's also weirdly a seduction like it's a very bizarre you know like he shoots her from far out in the doorway and she's sitting like in like a t-shirt but she's in like what would be like Greek you know like almost like Botticelli it's like a very and he she's in her bed he gets very close and Nick Nolte tells her she's not a little girl anymore to put the pants on (laughs) and there's this thing like well is she a little girl or is she responsible like pick one dad yeah yeah. You know what freaked I, me out was th- that line where she says to De Niro, um, are you the man who killed my mom's dog? Like, I keep snagging on the line, my mom's dog. Like, who, like, you live in a family. Who who talks about <laughs> pets that way? Like, oh, that dog belongs to my mother. I thought it was this great little throwaway detail that um, – gave you a little peek as to how isolated everybody in that family is from everybody else. Like Jessica Lange is smoking and drawing and doing her own thing with her dog. And, you know, Nick Nolte is on his own kind of obsessive quest. And she's really sort of left to fend for herself, except when her father interferes in this really clumsy kind of brutal way. You know what I was thinking when I was watching this movie? I love I love Cape Fear, and when when I was watching it, I was just like, I don't think Scorsese could make this now, because <laughs> it has mm. no fat on it whatsoever. It's so fast, and mm-hmm. every time you're into a scene, it just like slams shut the scene. Um, except for that centerpiece that we were talking so much about with Juliet and De Niro, and that the brilliance of that is that you actually want the scene to end because it's so uncomfortable. Um, but he, like his movies are so long now and he, he just lets scenes play on, but this one is just, he's merciless with the, the editing of this one. I haven't seen the original. I, so much this course says, I was going to ask the same thing about the original and if the Juliet Lewis character, uh, exists in the original. Uh, I, I haven't know. seen the original. Have, has anyone? <laughs> I, I've seen it and I remember... Um, Robert Mitchum, uh, who has a small role in the remake, being great, very scary, you know, but I honestly don't remember um, uh, whether there's uh, an equivalent to to the Juliet Lewis character. It, it feels like even if there was, this would be a complete original take on that, given the times. I'm guessing, but I shouldn't yeah. guess about something I haven't seen. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Rory, you were going to say something? I was just going to say if anyone had seen, asked if anyone had seen oh. the original, because I remember seeing like uh, bits of it on, on TV and passing and being like, oh, that's 
I didn't, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't know when watched it the first time, which by the way, I watched so many of these movies, like right when they came out, I was like, mom, why did I see Cape Fear? This is terrifying. <laughs> I think um, I had the same experience with 1991. Like this was such a nostalgic year for me when I look at all of them. And I think it's the timing. You and I, I think, are around the same age, Rory. And it's about the time when you got to start going to the video store by yourself. These were the movies that were out and not new releases. So they were like a dollar to rent. And we, I just went through <laughs> all of them. If there were ladies on the cover, I was renting them. <laughs> no, Nick, Bette Midler is also my gay. So we are the same person. I mean, I'm, I'm a Bette Midler gay. God, I'm sorry. I mean, we also, okay, well, then we should, we should note that Bette Midler was nominated for Best Actress this year for another movie with a, like, let me take you back framing device mm-hmm. called For the mm-hmm. Boys. Mm-hmm. Another also, movie with old age makeup. Lots of old age makeup. <laughs> Could really use a good hard Cape Fear editing job on it. Yeah. But a great performance nonetheless. I, I can't believe there was any old age makeup left for any other movie to use. Like, <laughs> it was all in there. All of it. Well, Kate Nelly didn't think about that having. Go on, oh, I was going to say the Cape Fear editing job for uh, Prince of Tides. I was thinking about like which one of these movies would I most want to like take like Cape Fear speed to, and I think Prince of Tides uh, and Kate Nelligan would be where I would um, maybe, maybe remove the Kate Nelligan character entirely if you did the Cape Fear job, but mm. something something should happen there. Yeah. You're going to talk about Cape Fear being good, which it is good, but that last scene with the flipping over in the boat, they just like I was like, this is not good editing. This is very confusing. What's happening? Like what what they when they come outside of the boat doesn't not match at all about what's happening inside. Apparently, at one point they do an entire three sixty. I couldn't figure out if that was just like what it feels like or what was actually happening. But um, so anyway, that was my at that moment I was like, this feels like a movie that was made in 1991 where they would have used like a different kind of special effects and took me out of it just a bit. Like, the storytelling at the end. Were we supposed to think that Jessica Lange and Juliette Lewis, like, swam to shore? Uh, or just I, got lucky and washed up on shore in this, like, brutal, torrential... Rain? That, that, was, that was really bewildering to me. I mean, that they just kind of show up, beached, conveniently, at the end. Yeah, I mean, all three of them. They all right. survived. Yeah. Um it would have been a much different movie if they hadn't survived. Drowning would have felt <laughs> anticlimactic, I think. Um, so we should talk about Prince of Tides a little bit more since we were talking about old age makeup. Um, Kate Nelligan, this uh, performance, like, was not well loved by the panelists. But, Mark, I noticed that you thought she was doing a lot more than the script. Yeah, like, I, I, I guess that this must mean I'm sort of at the top of the panelists in terms of Kate Nelligan. Yeah, I, I, my feeling was a, a, a like a really pretty good job with a bad assignment. Like it's it's a terrible part because you know it you have to lift buckets of things off it just to find it. You, like there's all this light and there's all this music and there's Nick Nolte saying, you know, I thought my mother was a good person, but she was a bad person. And and so like <laughs> the, the deck is stacked against her, like from the very beginning. And she has to play it in the, you know, she's a 41 year old Canadian actress having to play Nick Nolte's mother with not a ton of old age makeup with sort of, you know, a, a wig and, and, I thought she just kind of 
there were moments when she found a humanity to the character, or at least an explanation for her brittleness, that um, the script was really not helping her um, with at all. So I, I felt I think I gave her like an extra star just for sympathy of like you take the assignment you're given, you do the best with it, you try to bring a quality to it that isn't always on the page. So I felt I felt sympathy for her. I think. I mean, it's a mess. The movie's a mess. The story's a mess. I kept, a mess. I kept waiting for it to be, like, true camp, because it feels, like, just, like, teetering on the edge at all times. But but maybe it's, like, the central subject matter being rape makes it not... It's hard to enjoy in a camp way, but there's a lot of potential for camp in this movie. Like, even even the, like... There's, like, really embarrassing dialogue, like Nick Nolte having to be, like, made me as dizzy as her perfume, <laughs> you know, when he goes to that party and stares at Barbara Streisand, speaking of uh, gay divas. Or when they just cut to Barbara and she has those two floral pillows next to her and she's <laughs> listening to the rape story. I took so many photos of this and was, like, texting them to <clears throat> friends because I'd never seen it before. Mm. And talk about trigger warnings because, Jesus Christ, I didn't know that the whole child rape thing was coming and then I was really yeah I missed the memo on Prince of Tides yeah I feel like her office alone had like five different seating areas where people could confess things based on how bad the thing was that they were confessing (laughs) and how comfortable (laughs) Barbara needed to be while they were telling their story it's the biggest shrinks office I have ever seen the greatest camp <laughs> moment, though, is when he's going to come, it's right before he comes in to yell at her, and she's just sitting there casually reading the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> I did not catch that. I, was dying. I had to talk about it with my shrink this week. <laughs> <laughs> There's another edit. I don't know if any, anyone else has ever, oh, sorry. I can't oh, go ahead, Katie. Um, I don't know if any of us have ever, ever read The Prince of Tides. Um, Pat Conroy, when I was growing up, was like the grown-up books that everyone read. And like my parents read all of his books. And I read The Prince of Tides. I, I knew the child rape was coming. I was really not prepared for how much the movie would show of it. Um, but that kind of florid language you're talking about, Nathaniel, about smelling perfume and like the, you know, the Carolina moon is so much a big part of those books. Um, but that was why it surprised me. And I always did because I'd never seen the movie. The fact that they would take this bo- this book that's so focused on the childhood and the Carolina Marshes and the family and the mother and make it mostly a love story between a shrink and this guy. Like that balance was thrown off from the very beginning. And I feel like it never, not, not that like the, the other part of it would have been better, but it just felt so strange. And then especially to take, take Kate Nelligan out of the cast and be the one to single out as a result. Yeah. Does the book, since you, you've read the book, does does the psychiatrist not have that big of a part? It's like a, it's much more balanced toward the childhood, as far as I remember it. But then okay. again, I read it when I was younger, so maybe I was biased. But you know, that story is definitely there, but it's more like the frame story, the way that, like, you know, Frank Green Tomatoes is or something. Yeah. Also, hey, I, she's a pretty crappy psychiatrist if she's sleeping with her patient who's in a coma. So Brother. I mean, the whole thing makes no sense. But, like, I was super happy to see George Carlin. I, I, I mean, every time he was on that screen, I was like, this movie could actually be okay if we just did these scenes. Like, I don't know. I was I was surprised I'd forgotten he was in it. And, uh, okay, and but okay, once again, I saw this in 1991. My mom... Should be arrested. Um, I remember, <laughs> I remember so much of it, and I totally was, you know, traumatized by by the violence of it. And almost, also, like, there's a lot of rape in these movies. 
Like that's something yeah. that is like, especially because we're talking about women's stories. It's, it's amazing to me how much uh, sex and sexual violence is, is a part of it. But the part, there were two parts that were most disturbing to me. One, this is uh, one of my best friend's favorite books. And I was like, why does he like this book so much? Like, this is, why I got to read this book because it's got to be different. So it makes more sense to me that you say that her part isn't as, as big. But I was just as disturbed by the last third of the movie that they're like, and now we're doing it in the apartment. Now, after that big fight, they're like, let's do it in the apartment. Let's go to my country house and do it. Let's do it everywhere. I was like, what is this movie? I don't, I don't, I didn't you understand mean, it. We're not even mentioning everything involving Jason Gould. Yes. Yeah, the Jason Gould thing is like a problem because like I always want to defend Barbara Streisand because like one of the typical um, attacks on her is that, you know, she's a narcissist or whatever. And she gets that every time she used to make a movie. But in this case, the movie is not a good defense for her not being a narcissist. So it's like complicated. So I like how this and Fisher King both have like these beautiful little pieces in Grand Central Station. Yeah. That was one of my favorite things in this movie. It reminded me of the Fisher King and just like not being able to be in New York. The Fisher King was a deep experience for me this time. And this scene in Prince of Tides too. I was like, this is so beautiful, singular, like little golden nugget in the middle of this shitty movie. Can I say that I also loved seeing George Carlin in in on film? Just it was it was great to see him, and it was fun to see him play a gay character. It was strange. I don't don't remember that. You know, I don't remember clocking that he was a gay person when I was a kid. And but the craziest thing is to have to go see your sister in New York when you live in the South, and the neighbor comes in thinking it's a break in with a gun and it's like, Oh, hi, how are you doing? I'm no one in New York knows their neighbors names, but they're like <laughs> siblings and they're like buddies. I was like this, that's psychotic. <laughs> I just remember that like from the early eighties to the early nineties, so often uh, that was the gay character you got, you know, mm, the, hi, yeah. look at you two. Oh my God. <laughs> well, you know, here I brought you a potted plant. Um, I mean, it was like that sort of queen coming through the door, having a little moment and sort of, you know, sprinkling, you know, magic dust over the important straight people and then going on his way. But, but you know, 30 years ago, what you really noticed was like, oh, there's a, there's a gay character and, and he's not being made fun of or, or murdered, you know. Uh, but I think this was like one of the latest movies where you could still get away with that particular type, you know? I kind of love that they also, I mean, they did, they made him single, which, you know, I always noticed, but they gave him a partner who had, like, recently passed away or had broken up with him. Like, so like, at least they, like, made a mention of the fact that this person, is, his homosexuality isn't making him, like, asexual and just, like, you know, some girl's best, best friend who will water her plants while she, like, attempt suicide or whatever you know like a kind of that, that i clocked that as like a 2020 person watching this film like they they at least gave him like a little bit of even if it was just like an allusion to something there was something there my, my favorite sprinkling of fairy dust in these movies was michael judder and the fisher king though oh, oh my one god of the great performances. Oh, sprinkling of fairy dust <laughs> <laughs> good point nikki good point like a yeah, there's a lot of fairy dust. But he was—he was actually—he was a gay man though, in real right. life. So it was right. beautiful to like watch this 
full ass gorgeous gay phoenix rise in that movie i was so thrilled it was my first time watching the fisher king and i was oh wow beside myself (laughs) and also it's interesting to me that aids is there not explicitly but it's in like in the fisher king and in um prince of tides the the clear like michael jeter says all my friends have died you know or i watched all my friends die there was a very clear like it was when movies were mainstream movies were beginning to like acknowledge this crisis without saying so very explicitly. Um, I hadn't remembered until I watched all five of these movies that that was right at the moment when it, when, when movies knew they kind of had to nod to it without being, uh, making it the point of the movie. Yeah. Well, Cause you did have indies at the time, like longtime companion. And right. of course on stage, like angels in America was right, right around that time too. Right. Yeah, a little, a little later, but this was these movies that we all watched were after Normal Heart, for instance. Yeah. I, I mean, that was several years earlier. So, so it was already, it was absolutely in the culture and certainly in the world. But like studio movies are always slower than any other form to kind of acknowledge contemporary realities. Mm-hmm. So the Fisher King. It does make the, uh, the, the, this hiddenness of fried green tomatoes seem even sillier that like you've got some movies that are like, you've got like Michael Jeter's performance in the same year as them being like, no, they're not lesbians. It's like, <laughs> all right, guys, get on the same page. Well, and even like the fried green tomatoes is, is even really timid around stuff that's like foreground, other stuff that's foregrounded, like the racism and the Ku Klux Klan and stuff like that. All those scenes are like, they're just, it just felt like a, a weird, like, child's child's movie or something about yeah but that's like that's not the time period that's the thing we always like to do about the south right it's always like the protagonists are somehow unlike everyone else in their area and like most of the people are like really tolerant and get along with the you know with the with the blacks except for like a handful of like you know evil like obviously bad bad apple horrible racist you know like it's a very i I mean that's green book right i mean it's the same story where like there's a handful of bad people but everyone else is like fundamentally good and it just feels (laughs) it's just like the story we want to tell ourselves about because we do want that golden southern light and those beautiful southern accents we sort of don't want to deal with uh with some of the the dirtier darker parts of it yeah yeah i mean fried green to me that's to me was the hardest one to watch of of all five of these in that not that prince of tides is the worst movie but but in that it was um it just felt very uncomfortable because like every everything it was doing it wasn't doing at the same time i i just well, it's also it. doing 12 things yeah i my my husband had never seen it and so he was like, wait, wait, this is a trial movie now? This is, you know, this is a movie about menopause? This is a movie about, like, what? It is so many things because it's also based off of what is probably a very good book. So it's trying to check off a lot of boxes. But, yeah, I, I watched it, and, and there's, you know, talk about Oscar So White. There is no – there aren't even, like, extras in a lot of these movies of people of color. It is very very white and to have uh cicely tyson be the the the, in this movie and to have 12 lines and to still be the best part of those scenes that she's in for sure it's like it it's definitely the the white savior thing and also it's like what nikki was saying that it's trying to make this 
this evil villain be this horrible person so that people watching it can feel good like well i'm not like that and also those people are in the south not up here in the north you know like that feels like okay we've we've conquered that and i think that like a lot of looking back at movies that i watched as a kid on race I was watching stories about how racism was a thing in the 60s, and I'm so glad we conquered it. Can you believe that it used to be a part of our lives? And I kind of, I bought into that as a kid, thinking, wow, yeah, that's, racism is, is terrible. But you can see that that was, that these, that these characters were pushing that, like you said, like, the, oh, these are good people who stand up in the town, and they're the heroes, but where are the, the, the actual stories of, of the people of the town of color? Well, and, and as Nikki said, like, it's as recent as Green Book. I mean, you know, uh, 51 years after In the Heat of the Night, which I would argue is actually like a more progressive movie than Green Book, certainly for its time and, and you know, maybe period, you're still being sold this, this uh, anxiety-easing fantasy that, you know, we're, you know, people may have their problems, but, but we know who the really bad ones are and we're not them. And that it's clear that it's like very clear cut. So like, you don't have to worry. Like there's no room for nuance, right? Like, um, and even with the black characters, like they create these like all knowing, like sort of, you know, maternal, like it's a very old story that we've been sold. And as a, you know, as a person of color, a black person, watching these films and like you know, Rory said and Nick said, like I was, these were the movies that I would have been renting on Friday nights from the blockbuster. I realized how much of even my understanding of like my blackness and of like what dominant culture was, was really colored by these films. And I thought like, oh my God, I was a 12 year old girl who watched movies like popular movies and didn't see a single person in those movies who looked like me like that is like a very those are like very subtle messages that we're sending so it was a very to me it was a kind of a surreal experience because I'd seen all of these movies um except for Rambling Rose and uh and, and it was only in now that I realized what I was really watching you know it's, it's like we we don't do that as much anymore at least we hope we don't did um you know in terms of like seeing things again after all these years did did any were any of you like really surprised like something that was much different than you had remembered it from these movies i was i think i was surprised by juliet lewis because i think when i saw that movie because I had not really registered her before as an actress and she was very young. I thought, Oh, maybe it's a good performance or maybe it's just an accident. I, I I guess revisiting it, I was surprised at what like a clearly coherent and, and thought through performance uh, it was. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess, uh, Maybe the Fisher King surprised me because I hadn't seen it or thought anything about it in a really long time. I'd yeah. listen to what other people thought of it. Yeah, I loved it at the time. It was in, like, cause I've been making my lists my whole life since I was a little kid, <laughs> like, going to movies. And I, it was in my top ten that year, but I didn't really remember it well at all. So that one felt like the most of a discovery to me for this. And I still loved it, but it was, like, funny, like, this and Cape Fear, uh, The Fisher King and Cape Fear are both such, like, filmmakers' movies. There's, like, 
weird shots and you know the 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 autorial voice and then the other movies just feel so like televisual mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to these like canted angles and craziness um but i loved the fisher king did everybody like it when i was watching it, it was my first time as i said earlier i had this thought i was like oh i'm watching one of my favorite movies for the first time yeah i loved it so much and we were deep into the quarantine when i watched it and i missed the city so badly and it is just such a love letter to New York City. And these performances, I think, are so beautiful. And I also have to say, Mercedes Rule was my acting teacher for a period when I was at Juilliard. She subbed for Hi. Michael Kahn for six months of my third year of school. Wow. So I'm pretty close with her in that regard. But I just, I, she blows me out of the water in this movie. She's so, she has everything. She can do anything. She can play 87 things in a second. I'm in awe of her. Yeah. I really what, love. Sorry, go ahead. I love that movie. I, actually, I really love her performance. Um, but, you know, it felt like having seen some other people who've done similar ideas, like that sort of Italian lady, the like the woman the, like, with the heart of gold, who like, I said this in my blurb, who like loves somebody who like is not that lovable. And like through their eyes, we see this man in a different light, blah, blah, blah. But like, I'm so sorry. Amanda Plummer to me was doing the weirdest, most brilliant, that, that dumpling shit. I could have watched it over and over and over again. And I was like, how is it that she did not get a nomination for this? So it's like Mercedes Will was great. But for me, it was like all about Amanda Plummer and that weird bob and that like very, you know, like that, that um, nose that she has, her dad's nose. And like, I was obsessed with that character. Yeah, I was too. Like the the only scene that I remembered like super vividly, and it played out exactly as I remember it from however many years ago, nineteen ninety one was 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 the um, double date scene, mm. which just is such a bravura scene, and it goes on and on and on, and like it's just every actor. I love that you can see all four of them at once, and they're all acting. I love shots where all the actors get to actually play together, and that it ended with that beautiful like pull back of the camera and um Lydia the Robin Williams singing about her it was just yeah I love that movie there are things I probably maybe was more impatient with aspects of the movie than the rest of you were I'm not I was gonna say exactly impatient Mark I'm really glad to hear you say that (laughs) (laughs) I'm not like the world's biggest Terry Gilliam fan I, I think his stuff can get really loud and shouty and and male. So one thing I really did like about this is that he makes room for actors to act and, and, and actresses to act. I mean, like Nikki mm-hmm. said, there are two really, really strong, uh, female performances in it. And I noticed that in, um, you know, Mercedes rules big scene at the end where Jeff or near the end where Jeff Bridges dumps her. Um, and she has to go through this, this volcanic series of emotions it's almost all an unbroken take. Um, and I thought, oh, you know, Terry Gilliam really knew that he had an actress who could really deliver, like just who, who could nail these 10 beats in three minutes. And, and uh, he was really smart not to cut and just let her do it. That's the theater training great. for you. He loved her in it. Yeah, and that I think that that take won her the Oscar. Yeah. I mean, no one else... Mm-hmm. That's the thing. I, I think I called her my thing. She's so mercurial. Like mm-hmm. she can just, she can change on a dime and you feel every emotion and every thought. It's magnificent. Well, that she, she is. I, 
incredible because she's able to have to show her vulnerability and desperation to find love that she's pursuing this man who needs so much help and also at the same time never loses any of her power any of her strength any of her knowledge and wisdom of life like she she is giving a layered performance that is fully realized and thought out and makes that movie so much better and funny and palatable to like what is a really dark and sad story. Um, I just, I struggle with the Jeff Bridges character a lot. And I think the, the context of the time might have made a difference is the idea of a Howard Stern figure and this like, you know, white guy who's in his gilded tower and like, can't be happy. And I, it made me wonder in the context of the movie, like how you can have someone like Mercedes Rule's character in your life and be that kind of a mess. Like she is so powerful. And you imagine someone like that loving you would like propel you forward beyond anything else. Um, and I think that's where, um, that's where some of that impatience that Mark was talking about came in for me, just like watching him being like, come on, dude, like she's right here. Give her what she wants. She deserves everything. And like Robin Williams too, like get over yourself, Jeff Bridges is what I kept thinking. Yeah. I think that's probably why he didn't get attention. Cause I actually think he's great in the movie, um, but the character is very unlikable. So they went with the two showiest performances, but I think Amanda and Jeff were just as good as the other two. One thing that amazed me is that um, I, Mercedes Rule, I think, had only had one significant movie role to speak of before this in, in Married to the Mob, where she's really mm -hmm. funny as a mob wife. But she comes into this, like, high-voltage, you know, sausage fest where she could just easily get obliterated by Jeff Bridges or Robin Williams or Terry Gilliam or the combination of them. And, like, she is not going to let them mow her over you know mm -hmm. like she holds your attention when she's on screen it, even though so little of that character is explained you know she did the hard work of figuring out exactly who that woman was and what she wants and why she wants it and why she's settled for what she's settled for um so you really feel like you're watching a, a complete person um when when she's in in a scene i i, I was just in terms of degree of difficulty, I was so, so impressed by what she did. Back in 1991, it was like kind of a tie between Mercedes Rule and Juliette Lewis for me. And now I've, I kind of feel the same way all these years later. <laughs> because the, both performances really, really hold up. Did, did Mercedes Rule get nominated for Lost in Yonkers? And was that right after this win? Uh, she did not get nominated, no. But, but she had just movie. won the Tony like six months before the movie came out. So people like had it in their heads, you know, that she was someone to watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, and the momentum counts for so much as we've seen over and over again in awards. Like if you're hot one year, then you have a, you have a window to get more attention. <laughs> so, Wasn't that uh, the Jessica Tandy rule that gets it, that yes. gets her in this race entirely? Yeah. Yeah, it's still hot off the Oscar win in that case. Um, yeah, because you, you watch that, and I'm thinking now, I like, why wasn't it Mary Stuart Masterson, for example? Yes, I, I felt the same way. It would have yeah. changed the entire trajectory of Mary Stuart Masterson's career, I think, in a very positive direction. And I think she deserved a nod over Tandy for that. Yeah. Except she would have been in the leading actress category, don't you think? That's another thing we haven't discussed, but it's a. I'm glad you bring that up, Nikki, because um, uh, Nick, I believe you mentioned um, Diane Ladd's fierce defense of the supporting actress category. 
Yes, I love that clip of Diane Ladd from the red carpet talking about all these leading actresses in her category. (laughs) And I love it. She's my hero. She's amazing. But I think if this uh, year, if this was today, they would have tried to put Selma or Louise, probably Susan Sarandon, in supporting to try to push her through and supporting, which would have opened the lead category to someone like, I mean, in my fantasy, Lily Taylor for Dogfight or something like that, mm-hmm. which would have been amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's like the supporting people going lead is, you know, a, a pet peeve of mine. Um, and But it is interesting to note that back in the 90s, people still thought of leading roles as leading roles and even sometimes supporting roles that you could argue still, even if you're a diehard, like these things should be separate like me. Like um, Mercedes Rule was, she did receive some best actress plaudits for The Fisher King, like in lead. She was the lead female, even though yeah. it was a supporting role. I mean, that makes, that's mm. sort of oh. a tricky thing. And I have noticed in actors' bios sometimes, not trying to call any of you out, but in, in just in every actor's bios or in publicity, they always say, or, or you know, it's more publicity when someone gets a role. They always like a leading role, and then you see the cast list, and it's like you know, 12 names or whatever. And I was like, uh, would you mean the lead? <laughs> or I think it's just how publicists sell everything. So it's funny because then by the time you get to awards, like everybody's like, no, I'm supporting because <laughs> it's easier to get. Nathaniel, it's all about billing. If your name is above <laughs> the thing, then you're a leading actor. But then, you know, it's a tricky thing. Just I just want to get on the bill. I just want to get on the bill. I don't care where you put me. <laughs> Yeah, so, okay, uh, I hate to wrap up, but we kind of need to. So I know you're on lunch break, Nikki, so we have to get you off. I'm interrupting you just to say, nobody has mentioned Diane Ladd's hearing aid. I could not stop thinking about it. I don't know why it was there, but I've never seen anybody use it to greater effect. That scene where she takes it out because they're fighting in the bed. I was dying. My husband was like, <laughs> she's so funny in that movie. She's yeah. That, so the funny. hearing aid deserved a special shout out because what was, what was happening? <laughs> yeah. That's an example of actor doing business where it totally works for the movie. I'm just like, yes. Yeah. Also, that speech when they wanted when they want to try to give the hysterectomy to her is so beautiful. And also watching it's her so just good. interact with her daughter and how much you can tell there's like that underlying love and pride that she has for Laura in this movie. It's so gorgeous. The director helps her on that speech. He shoots her and then he slowly pushes in. They do mm. that on the crown a lot, I've noticed. Mm. And it just like totally gives the thing that the person saying like such importance. It's really beautiful. Uh, that scene in particular, I thought was like really well shot. It really showed her off. Yeah. I love, I love that. Scene. I love that scene. And then, but, but for me, it was like the director nails it. Dan Ladd nails it, and you think this is a beautiful job, and then suddenly Dan Ladd is like, and furthermore, it, like, <laughs> for me it just went on like one beat too long, but, but she's great. I mean, she was like a, a joy to watch. But it, but I think it sets up the. I I agree that it's really gilding the lily there, but it but it um it it does have a beautiful resolution with Robert Duvall being thoroughly chastened, and he yeah. plays that really well. I think. Well, that scene happens, and you're like, oh, this is why you made the movie. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering for a long time <laughs> where we were going. Now that, okay. What did Martha Coolidge make after this? Does anybody know? 
I'm trying to remember. Because I, I thought she would have a bigger career, but you know the the discussion about gender parity behind the camera had not been happening in the early '90s so much, other than people complaining at the time that Streisand wasn't nominated for Best Director, which is now something that's hard to get behind in the conversation after watching <laughs> Prince of Tides. She made yeah. Out to Sea with Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. She made um, Angie with Gina Davis, which was oh. a, a really early 90s fave of old Nick's here. <laughs> and she made Lost in Yonkers with our Mercedes Roll. Oh, okay. Hmm. Connections within, within the category here. Okay, so we always end with a game where um, each duo has to pick one actress that we've been discussing and put her in one of the other roles in, in the movies we watched. Um, who wants to start? Anybody? Just of the nominated actresses? Yeah. I mean, I want to see Juliette Lewis in The Fisher King now. Yeah. <laughs> she I, would be, be either great. Either of the roles, actually. Yeah. I, I would love to have seen Jessica Tandy in Kate Nelligan's old role, in like the old half of Kate Nelligan's role. Yes. Prince of Tides, because it would have been really fun to see her play someone unsympathetic, and she could have really, I think, torn into it. Yeah, because she didn't usually play that. We always saw her as this, these, like, nice old ladies. Right. Um, Diane Ladd. Oh, oh, sorry. Diane Ladd in Fried Green Tomatoes in any of the parts. <laughs> I was going to put Juliette Lewis in Fried Green Tomatoes. Like, May, I, I do like Mary Stuart Matheson, but, like, she could be a very interesting – she was too young, but she would be an interesting edgy for good in the flashback. Yeah. How about you, Nikki? Oh, God. I mean, I don't know. Anyone else in the Fisher King. Like, <laughs> anyone else. I guess I would put Diane Lamb in the, in the not in the Fisher Kids. Excuse me, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Um, in Prince of Tides, I would move Diane Ladd over to Prince of Tides and see what she can do with that. That would be good. Well, yeah, that would be interesting because Diane Ladd, Ladd actually has so much range. Like Wild at Heart was the year before this, so I don't know if all of you have seen that, but she's crazy good in that and really yeah. disturbing. She and can do anything. That's an about face the very next year for Rambling Rose. Did Wild at Heart lead to this nomination for the two of them? Was that part of the Oscar narrative that like they didn't get in for Wild at Heart, so they want they wanted to push for this movie? Well, Diane did get in for Wild at Heart. Oh, she did get in for Wild at Heart. Okay, but then, yeah. so the, the double act is what happened the next year. Yeah, yeah, but it is interesting that they made uh, two movies back to back together, um, and then got not both got nominated. Laura Dern and her for the second one. And not playing mother and daughter, which is another fun yeah. thing about it. Um, all right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for attending the SmackDown. This was so much fun. I hate to wrap up, but we have to wrap up. Um, so as we say goodbye, we'll go in reverse order and just tell the listeners where they can find you and what you're up to right now. So thank you, Nick Westrate. Thanks for having me. Um, I am just up to quarantining in my house and making for the girls podcast, which you can find anywhere that podcasts are free. Great. Thank you so much. And Rory O'Malley. Um, yes, you can find me in my garage here listening to Nick's for the girls podcast or on uh, central park on Apple TV, which, you know, luckily it's a cartoon, so we can record that from my garage. <laughs> and Katie Rich. 
you can mostly find me on Twitter at uh, K-A-C-E-Y-R-A-C-H, uh, and I'll talk about my various podcasts and whatever, whatever else I'm up to from there. And Nikki James? Well, I'm currently in the next couple of weeks making some a very limited edition piece of experimental theater in the Hudson Valley. We're trying to explore how we can create live theater in the world of social distance, and I think we're doing a good job. And um, then I'll be back in New York, in New York City, waiting for the theater to open back up again. I'll be so excited to sit in one of those seats again. And uh, Mark Harris. Um, I'm on Twitter at Mark Harris NYC, and uh, NYC is where I am quarantined, uh, listening to all of your podcasts. And um, <laughs> uh, I, you can find me in the pages of New York Magazine or on Vulture uh, pretty regularly. And do you know when your Mike Nichols book is coming out exactly? Fe- February 2nd, 2021. Wow, can't wait. Can't wait. Um, That's awesome. I can't right- wait. <laughs> yeah, because you've been working on it a long time. Yeah, five oh. years. Wow. I'm going to buy that for so many people as a gift. <laughs> that was, that was me with pictures at a revolution. I was like, yeah, one for you and one for you. Thank you, guys. Um, all right. Thanks again to everybody for discussing 1991. Um, thank you all. It was seriously a joy. Thanks. Hi, thank, thank you. you so much. Bye. Bye.